Hey, Forge family. Today, this afternoon, we're going to do an introduction to the story of Jacob. And Jacob's story spans the last 25 chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, that may not be completely um, unprecedented because David's story also spans many, many chapters through Samuel and into the Chronicles Kings and Chronicles, so and, and, and his descendants as well. However, uh, we need to find out why Jacob is so critical in the story of how Israel came to be and ultimately <clears throat> the line of Jesus, our Savior. And so let's begin with prayer. Father, we ask you to put down a root inside of us to get us ready to receive this and get us ready to reproduce it, to, to have it in our, in our spirit and our soul so that we begin to be able to talk about this and say, look, look what I found, and pass it on to someone else. Get ready to reproduce. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to give you the end of the story. The butler did it. I mean, isn't that usually what happens when you, when you have a novel and you're going, oh, oh, what happened here? Well, uh, in this case, the, the end of the story of the, here and the introduction of, of, the, of the lead up to Jacob is there, there are like five significant things to track through this, uh, this introduction. Number one, the seed. Where did it come from and where is it going? It ultimately goes from the woman, um, Eve, all the way through the line to the birth of Jesus. And we want to see that as, it, as it's coming through the line and as it's being protected and as it's being threatened and God intervenes. Second, the land. Why is the land important? Third, God's rule. And it isn't just his rule over his people. It's his rule over all peoples and his willingness to bless all peoples. Fourthly, God's faithfulness. He makes promises and then he keeps those promises. He makes a way where there seems to be no way. And lastly, just keep track of the conflict that pops up here from the very beginning pages of Scripture of the conflict between God, the Creator, God, the Ruler, God, the Father, and Satan, who is a fallen being. And this fallen being has been cursed in the fall, and but that fallen being sets out to disrupt and to di disqualify and to destroy God's plans and God's the seed that God has set in the earth to bring about Messiah. So those five things, the seed, the land, God's rule, God's faithfulness, and the conflict is kind of the overarching skeleton that we're going to hang all this information on. And as we begin, we begin at the fall. Adam stood by while his wife was tempted by the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And he had an agenda. He wanted to watch this play out. He didn't correct Satan and he didn't correct his wife. He just crossed his arms and watched it play out because he wanted what was being offered. To be like God. And to be the moral center of the universe. So that he could determine right and wrong. And when the fall comes, God has to, has to confront that. And so the first thing he does after the fall is he curses the serpent and says, on your belly you're going to go, there's, but there's going to be enmity. 
between the seed, your seed and the seed of the woman. Now, you're going to bruise the, his heel, but he is going to crush your head. There's a great picture of that, actually. It's a, you know, fictional. Eh, it's, an, it's an artist's screenwriter's viewpoint. But in the garden scene, uh, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is praying before the, the night before his crucifixion, he is in the, um, in the movie entitled um, The Passion of the Christ, Satan appears to Jesus in a dark form. And out from underneath the dark robes comes this black snake. And the response of Jesus is to wait and wait and wait. And then he stomps on the head of that snake. He just crushes it, grinds it. It's a picture, and it's a prophetic picture of what is going to happen when the resurrection comes and Satan will be squashed. And then there's a curse put on the man. It says, because of what you've done, because you have sinned, cursed is the land. And, and you're going to, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to work this land, and it's going to be hard and hard and hard. And so they, they proceed to have children. First, Cain is born, and, the, and, and Eve says, I have made a man, paren, with the help of the Lord. Close paren. And the sense of the grammar is, I did this. Now, obviously... Um, we, we know very quickly in this account that conception, especially conception in families that carry the seed, is a God thing, not a human thing. And then she has a second son named, named Abel. There's a worship scene where Abel, who, makes, who, is a, who takes care of flocks, and Cain, who uh, is a gardener, he's a farmer, he just brings some of his produce but Abel brings the best. He brings the first things. He brings the fat things from his flocks. And God just says, I don't, you know, this was not a worshiper's response. And he rejects the, the, the offering, if you will, from Cain. Cain gets ticked. His countenance falls. And God immediately gets up in his face and says, Cain, sin is lurking at the door. And you have to conquer it or it's going to get you. Well, King grumbles is on his way. He never deals with that. He meets his brother in the field and kills him. Now, Abel is dead. The blood on the ground cries out to God. And God says, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain says, well, what am I, my brother's keeper? And the Lord just says, you murder. You have taken the life of your brother. Okay? Essentially, he's basically saying, you're done, son. He's, he's put out of, the, out of the region. He's sent away to the east. And Cain starts his own line. All right? And in that line that descends from Cain is, comes the entry of murder into, into mankind. By his own hand, by the hand of his descendants. The entry of polygamy. The entry of demonic control. The entry of evil, deviant behavior and violence. So here, here's two, for example, two examples of how Satan has come after the fall to try and disrupt the line. Eve thought, man, Cain is the one. Cain is going to carry the seed. And this, this hard season of digging in the dirt is going to be over. Cain has been banished. Abel is dead. And finally, Adam and Eve have a third son named Seth. And from Seth comes the line that carries the seed. And that runs down through generations to Noah. Now, we turn in, in, in Genesis chapter 6, and it says the Lord is just, he's just had it with mankind. If he repents for ever having 
created mankind because he says, my spirit will not strive with man forever because he is he also is flesh. And so he, he limits the number of days for mankind. And then the Lord saw the wickedness of man, which was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, I mean man's heart, was only evil continually. I mean, it's bad scene. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so there's this record. Noah's 500 years old. And the Lord says, you build yourself this big floating box called an ark because it's going to rain. Obviously, Noah had no clue what he was doing. He was not a master carpenter or builder, but he did it. He, he did it. He started building and took him 100 years. He bore three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth on the way. And they, they and their families participated in this. They had never seen rain because the earth was covered with a cloud. It says that the earth was watered because the mist rose from the earth and it watered everything. But when the Lord says, it's going to rain, um, Noah believed him. Noah acted on it. And in the 600th year of his life, God sent the rain. And you know, we know the account of the, the clean animals and unclean animals that went all aboard the ark. God shuts the, and God shuts the door. And mankind, yeah, because of the line of Cain and, and the twisting that Satan had put in that line, they're wiped from earth. The heavens open, the earth, fountains of the deep open. And, and for um, months, Noah's family floats around. Until finally the ark is grounded, God makes a covenant with them and says, here, I'm going to put my sign in the sky that I'm never going to do this again. I, I'm never going to annihilate mankind and, and judge the earth in this way again. So be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And God blesses them. Now, Noah is a farmer. So Noah plants a vineyard, he makes wine, Okay, those grapes, grapes are covered with a, a natural yeast. And if you put grapes in a crock and mash them up, guess what? In a matter of days, that starts to ferment, if, in hours if not days, and, it, and within a very short period of time, you have an alcoholic beverage. Um, and uh, he says he drank and he was, he was uncovered. He was naked inside his own tent. And his son, Ham, violates protocol walks in on naked dad and gets an eyeful and then turns and walks out. But he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not proactive. He goes and tells his brother, ha ha, the old man is snockered. His brothers recognize there's a violation of some major proportion here, multiple violations, in fact. And so they throw a robe over their shoulders back into the tent through the door drop the covering off their shoulders over their father to cover him and leave. When Noah awakens from his drunken stupor, he knows by Holy Spirit what has happened to him as a result of Ham's invasion of his tent. And Ham is then um, judged. He's cursed. And the descendants of Ham, because it doesn't name Ham, it names Canaan, who is the firstborn son of Ham, and says, you will be servants. You're going to be slaves. And he blesses Shem and Japheth, but specifically Shem, who's the firstborn. And he uses the personal name of God to bless his son. And so that godly line continues through that son. 
Ham's descendants scattered through the Levant, but mostly on the, mostly around the uh, the Palestinian, the coast, and things like that. Japheth's people went north. They went into into Turkey, modern day Turkey and Greece. They were they were the people group that started those civilizations to the north. <clears throat> and and as this line grew, and they were fruitful, they multiplied. They began to fill the earth. Um, there's a group of people in the valley of of um, uh, the of Mesopotamia, of the Tigris and the Euphrates River, who get together and they decide, let's make a name for ourselves. So we're not scattered across the face of the earth. They wanted fame for themselves. They wanted fame for their progeny. And it was just blank human pride to have self-made security in a city. And they were also not fulfilling the command of the Lord to fill the earth. They were gathering people into one place and, and they were going to build this tower that was going to reach to heaven. And so God comes and, and uh, there's, there's, um, uh, he, just, he recognizes this tower building thing is self-assertion against God. And, and as in the garden, okay, there's, there's like a second tree of life here. You know, as in the garden, and God removed, first God removed men and women. God does the same thing here. God acts at Babel, and the the men had said, "Come, let us build, and we'll make a name for ourselves." And and a, a multiple personality God, a triune God, says, "Come, let us go down and co- confuse their lip." See, they all spoke the same language because they all descended from Noah. Now, the way that the Lord. The, the method that God used to distribute those people over the earth was he gave people different languages. Technically, you know, the, the Hebrew says he confused their lips so that they could not understand each other until they found their own people group and, and moved out from that place. Now, the text says Shem's descendants moved down into the, uh, the bottom of that Mesopotamian valley at the confluence of the Tigris and the Euphrates River. And, and you see in the scriptures that Shem's descendants lead to a man named Terah. And he is the father of Abram. Uh, Abram is, it means exalted father. And he's married to Sarai. Okay, her name is derived from the word Sharatu, which means queen and and. The, that that person, that Sharatu, is the Akkadian word for the queen, the female consort of the moon god. The Lord God intervenes. He can see which direction humanity is headed again, and he intervenes here with this one man and his wife, who are, they're blatant idol worshippers. They're moon worshippers. And he says to them in, in Genesis 12, you leave. You follow me. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you descendants. And, and you leave your father's house and go. And so the Lord said, go forth from, you, from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in all the families of the earth, will, you know, is going to be blessed through your line. And Abraham, Abram did it. He took his wife, who was barren, and, um, and at the same time, Terah moved north. Terah and the whole family, with Nahor and, and other uh, uh, brothers, if you will, of Abram, they moved north to Haran. 
Now, we don't know how they got there, whether they went up to Tigris or they went up the Euphrates River, but Haran is in north-north Syria, kind of tucked up against nearly into Turkey. And they settle there until finally Terah dies. And then Abram leaves his father's house and leaves his relatives, and he takes his wife, and his, but he does take his, his cousin, Lot, nephew, excuse me, his nephew, Lot, and they travel down the, toward the Great Sea, toward the Mediterranean, down through Syria, down through um, Canaan, and they, they land in a place where the Lord says, here, I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to make of you a great nation. He, and he lands in Shechem, and, and uh, the Lord says to your descendants, I will give this land. And Abram builds an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. So he's, he's moved from just hearing God and walking in the right direction to now he hears God a second time, and now he worships. Then the famine comes. Now, famine is a, a, a phenomenon that you see throughout the, the Old Testament scripture and actually into the New Testament where there's, there's difficulty in, in Judea, in the Judean church because there's nothing to eat. There's no rain, so the grain crop doesn't grow. The animals have nothing to eat. You slaughter your herds. Uh, you sell your herds, and it's just hard times. Abram sees what's coming, and so he moves his family south toward the river of Egypt down toward the Nile, and there there's food. And he gets there, but he recognizes that when he arrives, he has a beautiful wife named Sarai. And potentates and despots and kings and pharaohs in that day simply took what they wanted. If they wanted that woman and she was a wife, that husband was dead, and that woman came into the pharaoh's household, the king's household. And so... Abram says to Sarai, tell them you're my sister. That's a half lie. She was a half sister. Common father, Terah, different mothers. All right? Sarai's taken in to the household to be a wife or part of the concubine system or the harem or whatever it was, whatever Pharaoh's plans were, and a plague strikes the Pharaoh's house. And it panics Pharaoh, and it is discovered that this woman he has taken in is married. And he's just appalled at what's happened, because he knows this plague has fallen on his house because he did something wrong. And he sends Sarai back, saying, how could you do this to me? And he sends sheep, oxen, donkeys, male and female servants. Uh, he, did, he sends wealth out with her and says, I didn't touch her, but you take her and you go away. So Abraham leaves, but now he leaves with riches. And he goes back up into the Negev. And once he's in the Negev, it says of him in chapter 13, he becomes wealthy. God honors and blesses his herds. God honors and blesses the the camp, women in his camp, the, sa the slaves and the servants, they have children. He has a rising um, army that's growing up in the middle of his camp. At the same time, Lot has his own family and has his own herds. And, and there's this kerfuffle, this argument between the, the herdsmen that belong to Lot and his faction, and Abram's plot. And they disagree over water rights and wells and, and, and herding places. And so 
Abram takes Lot to the top of the ridge and says, look over the whole land. Take the portion that you want. Now, that was not Lot's position in life. He was the nephew. It was Abram's position to say, all of this here I'm taking, and you get that. But Abram comes at it differently. He has trusted God for the outcome of this, and he opens his palms and says, take your choice. Lot chooses to go down into the Rift Valley, down into the Jordan Valley, to Sodom, because it looked green and inviting, and there was civilization down there, and he wasn't just going to be a lonely herdsman out on a hill any longer. And then the Lord turns to Abram, and he says, look north, south, east, west, all that you see, your descendants, all that you see, including where Lot went, all that you see, your descendants are, is, are going to inherit. And they're going to be vast as the dust of the earth. Arise, walk through the land. So this is the third time that God has spoken to him. And that was at Hebron. And he again, he builds an altar to the, Abram builds an altar to the Lord and he worships. It's his way to say, I honor you. I thank you. I'm your man. Chapter 14, there's four kings of the east that rise. Now, they had vassal states, which means all these other civilizations and cities that were listed in this text, they paid tribute. They paid money to, keep, to stay at peace. They sent hostages. They sent livestock. They paid, sent gold, silver, whatever it was, just to keep those kings at bay. Then it says, in, in such and such a year, those kings rose uh, excuse me, that, that the vassal states rebelled. The vassal states stopped paying the tribute and those kings rose and they came and they swept the region. They beat every, you know, there's four of them and four armies and they sweep up the population of the eastern side of the Jordan Valley way to the south, way to the south. And then they turn and come back up the Jordan Valley and they take um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah go out to fight. They're overwhelmed. They fall on the tar pits and the survivors flee to the hills. And those four kings sweep up all the food, all the people, and all the goods. And they begin to transport them north up the Jordan Valley. Word comes to Abram by a survivor that this horrific thing has happened. Abram takes his trained men. There's like 300 of them, 300 plus, 318 trained men in his camp. Okay, These are guys that are not just shepherds. They can throw a spear. They can wield a sword. They, they understood how to obey battle commands. He takes his men, and then there's a bunch of, of allies in the neighborhood who want a piece of this action. And that band of men, and it's not very many, you're going up against four armies. They start running. And they jog themselves north. They travel, they jog, they travel, they jog, they travel, they jog. And they, gather, they, they have come upon these four armies that are bunkered down for the night. They're eating, they're drinking, they're, they're, they're enjoying the booty and the women and the whole deal. That's what, what armies do when they, when they win, all right? And very likely it was a drunken army. And it says Abraham divided his forces... And he comes upon them, and um, he, he terrifies them at night. And, and as we know from, for example, the Battle of Gideon, 
has against the Midianites, you strike terror into the, the army below you, and that army fights itself because they can't identify who the enemy is, and they, they slaughter each other. And the result is those four armies of the kings of the east flee. They drop everything, and they flee. And Abram and his allies pick up all the goods, all the people, all the wealth, and take everything. They get it all back, and they start marching south with everything. And as they come down the ridge, they don't go into the valley. Again, they don't go down the They come down the ridge. It's a harder route, but it also means it's a defensible retreat route. Okay, they're not going to get run over from behind. All right, they go back up the same route. They go right down the spine of Israel. And as they approach um, uh, uh, what is modern-day Jerusalem, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, of whom it is said he was the unborn one, he is a mysterious uh, figure that pre he prefigures Christ in his role as priest, high priest. And he is described as the king of Salem, the king of peace, comes out to greet Abram. And he calls him, um, blessed be Abraham, servant of El Elyon, God most high. And he serves him bread and wine. Again, there's a huge prefiguring thing here of what is going to happen centuries later, 2,000 years later. <clears throat> and Abram takes one-tenth of all the spoils of the land and, and gives it to Melchizedek. And, and immediately turns and here's Bera, the king of Sodom, face to face with him. He survived somehow the, down in the tar pits. He got away from those armies. And the king of Sodom says, you, Abram, you keep all the goods I want the people. Okay? Now here again, here, here, here is here's Satan's deal again. All right? Because uh, Satan had a tight grip, tight control over what went on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it wouldn't have happened if there were no people. And if that king gets his people back, that grip continues, and those people will make for him again all the goods that he needs. And Abram says he had taken a vow to God to take nothing, not a thread, not a sandal thong, so that the king of Sodom could never say, oh, I made Abram rich. Simply, he, Abram said, let the men who are with me, let my allies, let Aner, Eshkol, Mamre, let them, and these were Canaanite allies, doesn't matter, he says, let them take their share. The guys who are his allies who ran north with him, but as for Abram and his house, they took nothing. Because all those goods had been crafted by and dedicated to people who were dedicated to Satan. All, you know, all those goods were set apart to false gods. I remember being in, in Argentina with my sons and, and finding really some beautiful uh, some beautiful jewelry, and in this case it was uh, mate cups and, and straws and things like that that had been silver-chased, beautiful, gourd kinds of things, and I, and I decided I want to bring them home. And I could sense there was some stuff, some spiritual stuff on those cups, but I brought them home anyway, and I figured I can anoint them with oil, I can pray over them, and that, that demonic dedication is going to leave. So I did that, got home, Took them out of luggage, anointed them with oil, prayed over them, put them out on the porch. 
you know, and told the Lord, I'm not yet taking possession of these, Lord. I'm just letting you have a shot at cleaning these off. Do you want me to have them, Lord? Came back in the morning. No change. I mean, they were just, they, they, they gave off, if you will, what I could discern as if these things had not shifted. They were still dedicated goods. Just like Abram said, I don't want that. I'm not going to touch that. And those things went into the trash at my house. <clears throat> All right, chapter 15. God comes and in a vision to Abram says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am a shield to you. Now notice this happens immediately after he throws himself and his household into extreme risky behavior to take on four armies. But now God comes and says, I'm going to be your shield. Abram responds and he says, uh, Lord, I don't, have a, I don't have your promise yet. You promised me a descendant. And, and the Lord takes him out outside the tent and says, look up, see the stars? So vast as they are, so will be your descendants. And in verse 6 of chapter 15, it says, Abram believed God, and God counted it to Abram as righteousness. His faith in that promise made him righteous. And it is that passage that seized Martin Luther. It is that passage where he began to understand that being right with God comes by faith, not by keeping laws and liturgy, by, by being part of a religious system. It is by faith and grace, of the grace of God alone. <clears throat> now in verse 9, God sets up covenant scene. Animals are split. There's a sacrifice that's taken place. Abram has his part to keep the, the birds of the air off of that. But then it gets, it, as it gets dark, a deep terror comes upon Abram. Because wherever God comes, there is darkness, which hides him. And Abram is, Abram is terrified. So God puts him into a deep sleep. And God unilaterally passes between those pieces of the cut animals and makes covenant with Abram. It's a unilateral covenant where God says, I am going to bless you. It has nothing to do with Abram. God just says, it's done. I'm going to do it. And then God makes a prophetic statement to Abram, that your descendants, which are going to number like the stars, are going to into captivity, 400 years of slavery. But then they will come out, and you will plunder that nation, and I will judge that nation. Now we know that took place in the Exodus. We know, ultimately, that Israel has to go down in famine season to Egypt again to get food, and they stayed 400 plus years, and then God brings them out. And then the Lord says, look, I'm going to give this all to you from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. That's all going to be peopled by your descendants. All right, I think this is the fourth time. Fourth time God has confronted Abram. And every time this happens, Abram steps forward and God reveals more about himself. That God cares for Abram and extends his promises. Now, chapter 16, Sarai still barren. Okay, which is, again, Satan's, Satan wants to block the seed. Satan wants to stop that happening. And so Sarai kind of goes, maybe I'll just do it the way the rest of the world does it. And so she offers Hagar, her Egyptian slave, as a substitute. And she marries 
Abraham to Hagar. It's a wife. And sure enough, the problem isn't Abraham. He's fertile. Hagar gets pregnant. But she gets pregnant, comes out of the tent and kind of goes, nee, 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 nee. Or whatever she did, she smirked, she wiggled, she spoke, she did something. She did something in the presence of Sarai, and it enraged Sarai because this secondary wife had sneered at her in some fashion, had put her down because she was pregnant and Sarai was not. And she goes to Abram, Abram says, you're a slave, you deal with her. Sarai drives Hagar out of the camp, thrashes her, beats her up, drives her out of the camp, and she's laying on the ground out in the desert, preparing to die. And the angel of the Lord appears to her and says, Hagar, hey, what's happening? What are you doing here? And, and Hagar says, I, I've driven, I, you know, my, my mistress drove me out and I'm pregnant. And the, and the angel stops her and says, Ishmael is going to be the name of the child you carry. And he is going to be a nation. You go back. You go serve your mistress. And so she carries that prophetic word, but she names that place for, quote, the God who sees me. You know, she says, I was with the living one who saw me, who sees me, and I'm not dead. She's just astounded that somehow she'd been face-to-face with a God and had survived. And it it is named um, Bir El-Roi. Yeah, you know, uh, it's it's a place where there's a well. She goes back and she carries out the pregnancy and Ishmael is born when Abraham is 86 years old. Chapter 17. Now, Abraham is 99 and God um, comes to him again, fifth time, and says, he identifies himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. And he changes the name. He says, Abraham... You're going, Abram, you're going to become Abraham. You're going from exalted father to father of a multitude of nations. And they make a, and there's another covenant, only in this case, the sign of the covenant is circumcision. You're going to set your body apart in every male on the eighth day. Born in your house, every descendant of yours is going to be circumcised on the eighth day. And Ishmael and Abraham are circumcised the same day. <clears throat> and in the middle of this, this covenant scene, maybe arm around his son, Ishmael, Abram turns and says, Oh God, let Ishmael be the one. Let him walk before you. Let him be the promised descendant. And the Lord just, he, there's not a blink. There's not a nanosecond of pause. God's answer is no. Because through Sarah will come the blessing. She will bear the descendant. And he changes the name of Sarai from queen, the consort of the moon god, to Princess, Sarah, chapter 18, the Lord comes and appears to Abram. He's the Lord, uh, the angel of the Lord, the presence, this theophany, this presence of the Lord comes with two other companions and they're walking by the tents of Abram and he sees Abraham and he runs out and he says, please, please come in. This is the law of hospitality in the desert, in the Middle East. Travelers are invited in. He invites, they, 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 they demure, but then finally they come and they sit. And he, he, he runs quickly to Sarah and he says, choose something um, tender and young and fat from the herd and prepare meat to eat and make some bread. 
And so they're sitting in the outer part of the tent. Remember, the tent is designed so that the man's part of the tent is toward the front. It's in the shade. It's the, the breezes flow through it. The, the women's part of the tent is in the back, behind a, behind a, a wall of cloth. But in truth, the women could hear what was happening. They couldn't see it, but they could hear what was happening. Okay? And, and the, the Lord turns to Abram and says, this time next year, Sarah will give birth. And Sarah laughs. Can't cover it up. She's just startled. Can't cover it up. She, she stuffs it down. And, and, and maybe it was just a <coughs> snicker or whatever it was. But, but the angel says, Sarah, you laughed. And she says, I didn't laugh. I didn't know. He says, you laughed. So they finished the meal. The prophetic word has been spoken. The Lord and, his, and the angel, there turn out to be two angels, stand and leave. They start walking. And then the Lord has this conversation with himself. Shall I not tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Especially because Abram is going to be great and mighty. And, and of him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I've chosen him in order that he might become... Uh, this man who commands his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And, and the Lord turns and says, look, there's, there's this huge outcry of wickedness that has rising up in front of me down in Sodom, and I'm going to find out if it's really true. Well, that conversation is not for his benefit. That's the conversation in words that makes sense to Abraham. And Abraham then um, knows that God is on his way down to judge that situation in Sodom, where Lot lives. And so the Lord says, I say, um, the Lord is, is on his way, and Abram speaks and says, Lord, will you judge the righteous with the wicked? Because his mind is reeling. It, is this God that I have heard from five times and worshipped over and over again, is he that kind of God? Is he going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? And so he says, what if there's 100 righteous? The Lord says, no, I won't destroy it. Well, what about 50? No, no. I, if there's 50, I won't destroy them. I, you know, I will not destroy them. You know, I, I won't destroy the city. I, I'll preserve everybody if there's 50 righteous. How about 45? How about 30? 20? And finally, Abram gets to 10. If there's 10 righteous the Lord says, I will not destroy the city for the sake of ten. You know, the whole rest of the city is wicked beyond extreme imagination. But if there's ten righteous, I won't destroy it. And Abram turns and goes back to his tent. And God, uh, you know, this, this theophany continues and, and heads down to the judgment of Sodom. Now, chapter 19 talks about two angels that arrive in Sodom. Lot is sitting in the gate which means he has risen to a position of some authority as an elder in the city. That's where the judges of the city and city affairs sit. He sees them coming, and again, it's the law of hospitality to strangers. He invites them to come to his house and spend the night. They say, oh no, we're going to spend the night in the square. Now, I've been in the Jordan Valley. It's hot. It's hot year-round, nearly. And and coming indoors at night, it doesn't sound very appealing in that extreme, you know, it's 100 plus degrees during the day, it's hotter in the house. But Lot recognizes the threat and, and brings them into his house, finally they come. As soon as he shuts the door and starts to feed them, it says young, and, young men and old men from the, all over Sodom come and rage at the door and say, give us those men. 
we're going to take them and have sexual relations with them. So you get the sense of what this is. This this is fresh meat. Those wicked men, boys and men, if you will, in Sodom, were were set upon um, gang rape, and and Lot is caught because of the law of hospitality to protect men underneath his roof, and he doesn't know what to do. So he he offers his virgin daughters, take them, do what you want with them. And his offer is blown back in his face. We don't want those women. We want those men. So they, they come, begin to batter on the door and tear it down. And the angel reaches, when the angels reach out and snatch Lot back into the house and then strike all those attackers, all those men and boys, blind. So they cannot find their way. The angel says, get ready for the morning. We're leaving in the morning. Get your household ready. Lot goes to his future son-in-laws that are in the house, and he says, God is going to judge this, this city. Get ready. And they laugh at him. They think he's joking. Dawn comes. The angel sees Lot and his wife by the hand and the daughters, and they race from the city saying, don't look back. Well, we know the end of the story. So, uh, Lot's wife looks back. The daughters and the father escape. They end up in a cave but the, but the daughters have been infused with the culture of Sodom. And they say to themselves, there's no man left to come into us after the manner of the earth. You know, there's no, we're not going to have children. There's no project. No one's going to be an inherit from Lot. So let's get our father drunk and go into him and make babies. And each daughter does that. Two nights running, they both conceive, and one daughter produces, produces a son named Moab, and one produces a son named Ammon. Those two men become the names of tribes on the eastern side of Jordan, of the Jordan River, and above the Dead Sea. Okay? They are relatives, if you will, of, of the seed. And so the Lord said, don't you mess with them. Don't you hurt them. Don't you pick up anything. Don't you steal anything from them. Now, ultimately, they oppose Israel. Ultimately, they try and destroy and disrupt the seed. Then God has to deal with them later. But he, you know, here again, you see the, the, Satan at work trying to disrupt this, this seed and this story. Now, God, God intervenes in the middle of that, okay? Because... <clears throat> We know that Ruth, the Moabitess, she's descended from, from Moab. Okay, she comes with her mother-in-law, Ruth, back into Bethlehem and is married into the line of Judah to her husband, Boaz, and she is one of the mothers of, of the seed that carries right through to Jesus. Now, chapter 20, okay, there's another deception. Abimelech is king of the Philistines, Okay, his name means my father is king. Okay, it's a title. It is a title, but he's a king. And he has troops and arms. And, and so um, in the text, Abram you know, um, is moving with his wife and they move in onto Philistine territory. Again, Abimelech sees this beautiful woman, Sarah, Sarah, and takes her. That's what kings do. And the Lord gives him a dream, gives him a vision. And threatens not only his life, but all of Gerar. All the Philistines present were going to die. But he's an innocent man. He was told, Sarah 
was the sister of Abraham. Again, the half lie. She's a half sister, okay? So he awakes and God says, you go to Abraham. He's a prophet. He's going to pray for you and he and you'll get healed. And so there's this, this, this business again where Abram, Abraham um, lies and God protects the seed, protects Sarah. And he walks away from Abimelech wealthier. He gets paid a thousand pieces of silver, okay? It doesn't help him learn that telling lies isn't the way to go, okay? And then there's a second encounter here, okay, where um, between, between God and Hagar. And it comes about because God takes note of Sarah in chapter 21. She conceives and she gives birth to Isaac when Abraham is 100. And then uh, when, the, when the child, when Isaac is weaned, he's named after laughter, he's named after what both Abraham and Sarah did when they heard that God was going to make them parents. Like, pfft, not a chance. They laugh, okay? But they name their son Isaac. And then when he's weaned, let's say three years old, he is weaned completely. And they have a, a big celebration. And off to the side stands the firstborn. Ishmael, who's, let's call him 17 years old now, okay? And he is mocking his little half-brother. Hey, milk mouth. Hey, you're not even potty trained. Hey, you know, you think you're going to, you know, whatever it was. There's some way, either by smirk or word or the back of the hand, he was, he was out of line with the, with the heir who was going to receive the blessings of God. And Sarah goes to Abraham and says, that woman and that child are not going to inherit. Get them out of the camp. So with a sad heart, because Abraham, Abraham loved Ishmael, but with a sad heart he goes. He loads a pack and food and, clo you know, and water and stuff onto Hagar and sends her away. And she goes out into the Negev, out into the wilderness, and she puts, and when the water runs out and death is imminent, she puts the child who's collapsed, the 17, you know, remember, she's a woman. She outlasts, tough lady, she outlasts the 17-year-old. And he lays down under a bush, and she figures, I'm, I don't want to see him die. She walks away. And there is, again, the angel of the Lord who goes, Hagar, you're back. Now, he, he promises again, from this man Ishmael will come nations. And then... She opens her eyes, and there's a flowing stream, a flowing, a flowing spring. It's artesian flow, flow. It flows up and then sinks back into the sand. She takes water and goes and refreshes her son, gets him hydrated, gets him fed, and they go on. And Ishmael, it is said of him, he's you know he was going to be a donkey of a man. He would be out in the wilderness. He would be edgy. His hand would be against every other man, and every other's man would uh, every other man would be against him. Ultimately, Ishmael has 12 sons, and they come, and they come, that list comes later in Genesis. And then at the end of that chapter, Abimelech and Phicol, Abimelech comes back, you know, and, and recognizes, God has blessed Abraham. God has provided for Abraham. God has protected Abraham, and Abraham is a king, and has, has a mighty household, has an army, and is, is somewhat a threat 
to the kingdom of Gerar, to the king, the Philistine kingdom. And so Abimelech and his general Phicol come, and, and man to man as equals, they say, we need to make an oath and a covenant between us. We're not going to hurt each other. I've done good to you. I want you to do good to me. And they make a covenant, and they do it in Beersheba. And it says, there Abraham worshipped the everlasting God. Another new name for God. Chapter 22, God tests Abraham. This is, this is where the Lord comes. It's the seventh time the Lord comes. And he says, Abram. And he says, here I am, Lord. And he says, Abram, in the morning you rise, you take your son, your only son, Isaac, and you travel 50 miles to, to Moriah, where I'm going to take you, and you sacrifice him. Abram is in shock. He, he knows that the gods that surround him require human sacrifice. That was common in the ancient East, near ancient Near East. That was common. But here you have a grown son. And the Lord says, pack up, take fire, take, a, take, take wood, and you go three days journey. He doesn't tell anybody. He doesn't tell Sarah. He doesn't tell the servants. He says, we're going. We're going on a journey. They go part of three days journey, 50 miles, and they get up to on top of this site on the ridge in Jerusalem in, in a place called Mount Moriah. That was the site that David bought. The th it was a threshing floor that David paid for. That was the site where Solomon built the temple. And it's at to that site that Abram, Abraham is instructed to go. He gets there. He builds an altar for sacrifice. He puts the wood on the altar. And with his son's compliance. You've got to remember, Abraham is now at least, at least 120, 117 and a minute. You know, 100, you know he, um, he, he, he takes his son and binds him. And Isaac didn't fight back. Interesting point. Remember that point. Isaac didn't fight back. Binds him, lays him on the altar, takes a knife, and raises the knife to plunge it and cut his son to bleed out. And, and the, from heaven comes the word that says, Abraham, Abraham, don't, don't kill your son. Now I know I can trust you. Now I know that you honor me. And you will do everything that I ask. And therefore, I will provide for you. And God goes on greatly to say, I'm going to greatly multiply you. All nations will be blessed. It's a renewal and it's an extension of the promise and the covenant. And in that place, it was named Yahweh Yireh, Jehovah Jireh. In this place, God will provide. At that moment, there's a ram whose horns are caught in a thicket. His wool is caught in the thicket. And Abraham takes his son off the altar and sets him free. And he goes and takes the ram and binds it with the same cords that bound Isaac. And the two of them lift this beast and set it on top of the altar. And that is the sacrifice to the Lord. In that place, God will provide his own lamb to take away the sin of the world. Chapter 23, Sarah dies. Abraham grieves her. 
But then he goes to find a place to bury her. And he goes to the Hittites, who are his neighbors, and he asks for a burial place. And they recognize, this man is a king. He can take anything he wants. And they say, go, oh, take what you want. He says, no, no, would you please contact, you know, Eshkol, um, you know, this man who uh, owns this field. And, and he comes in and they said, oh, you know, and it's the Middle Eastern bargaining. I'll just take, take it, my Lord. And Abraham says, I'm going to pay you for this. And, and the response is, well, what's, what's this piece of land with a cave on it that's only worth 400 Shekels, just silver shekels, just just take it. And Abram weighs out and pays for this piece of the land. And on it was this double cave called Machpelah. And into that cave he put Sarah. And it became the burial place for the patriarchs. He himself will lie beside her. You know, and in that place will come Jacob. And in that place will come Joseph. You know, and so this was the only piece of land that Abraham ever owned, and it was to bury his dead. But it's a down payment that the land is coming to him and his descendants. Chapter 24, Abraham is really old, really, really old, and he calls a servant, his, his lead servant, and he, he says, you take an oath. And, and, um, I, and the oath is, you're, you're going to go and get a wife for my son Isaac. You will not take a wife from the women of the Canaanites. That's a, that's, those, are, those are people who are descended apart from the seed. Don't go there. Don't get a wife for him from the Canaanites. Okay? And, uh, and then he says, don't take Isaac with you. Don't take him out of the land. You travel to Haran. You go back to my people. You go back to northern Syria and you get a wife and if she won't come you're released from your from your oath and um, he asks this this a servant to slide his hand under his thigh well under the thigh are his genitals it is it is a it is a most uh, powerful binding oath because essentially he's saying from the source of life I am charging you and in the name of God most high I'm charging you, you go get a wife for my son. And this son, and this, um, this servant goes, he travels there. And then there's this first recorded specific prayer to God for guidance. Never before has anybody approached God and said, please help me. There's this problem I have. I have to find this woman. So let her be the one who comes to the well and offers me a drink and then says, I will water your camels also. Well, that was a daunting thing because to water the camels of that man would have taken something in the order of 200 gallons of water drawn from a well and poured out into troughs because each camel can drink 20 gallons, 25 gallons. That man gets down on his knees and he worships God because the Lord is faithful to Abraham and, the, and he believes you know, that um, such a thing is going to come to pass. Sure enough, here comes this woman, beautiful woman. Says of her, she's a virgin. Has no man's ever known her. She comes, she draws water, he asks for a drink. She drink, gives him a drink. And then she says, let me water your camels too. And he's, he's like, now I can worship. Now I know the Lord is faithful to Abraham. Then he asks who she is. And she says, oh, I'm related to, to, uh, um, Bethuel, 
Who is the son of Nahor? Who is the brother of Abraham? And again, that the, the servant of Abraham worships and gives praise to God and, and gives her tokens, gives her gold uh, nose rings and, and earrings, and, and, and he gives her rich gifts. And she goes running into the house to show that um, a, a servant has come from this powerful relative. Well, he comes in, and uh, Laban and uh, others rush out because obviously, if this man's giving gold to the to the girl, he's got wealth at hand. Runs out, he's welcomed. It's the hospitality thing. They set up the feast, but the servant stops and says, "I'm not going to eat until my quest is told, until this is made clear of why I'm here." And he tells again the entire account of of, of the oath and coming, and the drink, and watering camels, and hearing that indeed this was a woman of the family. Yeah, essentially, he says, first things first. It's, and it's a complete retelling of the account. It's, it's in the scriptures. Whenever there is a doubling of words, a doubling of the account, you need to pay attention, because it, it, it extrapolates and it extends the power of that text. Look what God has done. God's faithfully going to provide a wife for Isaac. Now Laban and Bethuel, they, 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 they duck the choice. They just say, well, this whole thing must be of God. And they, you know, but they're not worshiping the same God. They're, they're idol worshipers still. But they recognize this is an amazing coincidence. And there's, there's cash on the line here. The servant of, the servant of, of Abraham worships God again. But in the morning, Laban and uh, Rebecca's mom, they, they say, well, look, uh, why don't you have just delay? It's our custom that the bride uh, hangs out here for a while. It could be a day. It could be 10 days. It could be 10 years. And there's some treachery there. There's some, we're gonna, in other words, we're going to string this out until we have all that's in your purse. Until we extract from you promises for more. And the servant calls, you know, and, and, and says, no, I'm leaving. They, and they turn to Rebecca and they give her the choice. In other words, it was, it was not her choice that was to be made. It was the family choice. But they deferred, they, they step back and, and Rebecca is the one who says, um, I will go. And so she chooses to leave her, her gods and her family against family wishes, actually, and she chooses the God of Abraham and chooses to go to be the wife of Isaac. There proceeds to be a journey back into the Negev and, and the, the uniting of Isaac and Rebekah in marriage. Now, at the end of chapter 25, or beginning of chapter 25, Abraham remarries. Sarah is dead. He remarries, and he marries a woman named Keturah. Her name means uh, fragrance. Uh, it's and it may be a reference to the fact that she and and her sons, she has six sons by Abraham, almost all of them are involved in subsequently in the the perfume trade, in the spices trade uh, that runs from Yemen and the coast of Arabia and the coast along um, the um, the Red Sea. <clears throat> Abraham dies and he is put 
into Machpelah, into the double cave by both Ishmael and Isaac. They come together, these two sons, one by Hagar and one by Sarah, and they bury their father. And then the text lists the 12 sons of Ishmael. Now in the table of the nations, which is a document that records where that records the roots of where all these people groups came from. Um, both with the sons of Keturah and the sons of Ishmael, uh, they scatter. They go east and they go, they go far. Many go into Arabia, into the Arabian Peninsula. Some go north into Syria. Some go east all the way into Mesopotamia. But it is a spreading out of the sons of Abraham who become nations but they're not carrying the seed. And so now we come up to, to uh, uh, the birth of Jacob. That's sort of the next event in this line. And, and consequently, I want to remind you, we've been looking at the seed, the land, God's rule, and God's blessing, in some senses, over all peoples. God's faithfulness to keep his promises and to make a way. And lastly, this conflict between the Lord God, the Creator, and the fallen being, Satan, who seeks to disrupt and disqualify and to destroy the seed. So, Forge, I want you to be blessed. I want you to be, um, to be uh, encouraged by this because um, this sets the stage for the appearance on the scene of a man named Jacob. From Jacob comes the nation of Israel. From Jacob comes the line that proceeds down through Israel to Jesus. And I want you to get that sense of we're going somewhere. We're in, we're, and you're going to understand a big, big chunk of the history that makes up the Old Testament. So God bless you. Lord, I pray that this would go down into their hearts uh, and they would receive it for themselves and seek um, from the texts that we've looked at. Oh, that's where God's at work. And he works that same way in me. Lord, I pray also that they would be ready to reproduce what they know into the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, see you soon, Forge family.